Take your case off. As a, as I'm taking your case off. Take your case <laughs> Take off. Take your case off, idiot. Oh, good good thing you're here. <laughs> this is No Politics at the Dinner Table. I'm Tony Biancasino. And I'm Amit Prakash. Tonight we have a special guest straight from DC repping Dissent Magazine. It's pretty amazing that this is happening. It's great. Yeah. So I make things happen. All right. Let's go. Let's do it. So how about Syria? <laughs> oh my God! Let's just you, rip the bandaid you, did off. Did you hear? Um, yeah, pretty pretty insane. I'm going to do one thing right now, and it's an example for democratic leadership out there. And they just got to repeat this on every news interview. I'm against Donald Trump strikes in Syria. Yeah. Without congressional approval, I'm against it. That's it. Yeah. Then then yeah. the party might go somewhere and unite and a resistance could be real. So I would go one step further than that and say that Democrats and actually anybody um, who can honestly look at the situation should say, I'm against more war because we have enough war already. We're already at war. Uh, we're, we're already in the longest running war in American history, Afghanistan, since November 2001. Wow. Right? That's still going with no end in sight. Wow. And then we've got all sorts of air wars all over the Arabian Peninsula. And then something like 33 African countries are, are special forces are, are operating in, 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 in shooting engagements as well. So I think that's good. I think that's, that's enough. <laughs> I think it's enough for war. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Were you shocked about how many Democrats came out like praising this bullshit? Not at all. You weren't? Not of course not. No, not at all. Not. Because, uh, you know, the one thing, and I mean, look at who the DNC candidate was. Right. right. Some, Who, the, by the, the way, in an interview said we should strike right, the airfield. Right. It's Even like, before it was done. I'm yeah. watching this yeah. going, do all those support, all those right. Clinton supporters, do they watch it? I mean, I know the answer. Yeah. Do they watch that and go, oh, my God, she's just like the rest of them? Or did they actually believe she was different? They believe that her rationale would be a much more judicious one, a more reasonable <laughs> one, um, a one that she would say it nicer. Yeah, exactly. That you know that she, you know, it, it would. It's the same sort of thing with Obama that he would do similar things. Right. Although interestingly, he didn't do this. He did not do um, this. But but when he did, it's not that he didn't engage in violence. But when he did, he always did it with like sort of biting his lip. And yeah. like, he looked like really reluctant, but he did it anyway. Right. Uh, rather. Than being so gung ho about it, like Trump, um, and so again, it's not it's not so much uh, the act itself, the state right. behavior, but it's whether you're doing it with a smile or a grimace, right? That's yeah. that's that's really what it's about. Um, so it's no, I was not. <laughs> long story short, I was not surprised at all because no. they get off on that. They literally, I think they they are sort of like elated by it. Um, We're just addicted this. to bombing. It seems like it. It's unbelievable. It's, it seems like um, Greg Grant and a historian at NYU published something in The Nation um, in early January. And and I, I didn't know about this. I just learned about it from reading the article. But the, the Pentagon has basically a publicly accessible log of all the bombs they drop. Um, oh my God. And, and I guess it's some sort of Freedom of Information Act thing because it's like, where are your tax dollars going? Um, and so last year, over 26,000 U.S. bombs were dropped around the world. 
right? Um, Jesus so Christ. think about that, right? It's a lot of bombs. That's a lot of bombing, <laughs> right? So 26,000, yeah, right? 26,000. Yeah. yeah. So um, I think it's enough. Uh, it's not like there's an appreciable uh, gains by it, right? That, oh, yes, our political situation is so much safer and better. And no. The world is a safer place as a result. And, uh, the opposite, in fact. So, yeah. Um, one other thing totally has nothing to do with Syria, but the last guest we had on is now running for governor of Chicago. Amazing, right? Wait, of Illinois, not Chicago. Oh, my, yeah. my bad. Of Illinois. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My bad. Yeah, yeah. Governor of right, Illinois. Right, right. Which effectively is just Chicago, right? I, I mean, I uh, actually yeah. can't name you another place <laughs> right. in Illinois. Right. There's also, I believe, wait, Southern Illinois. Wait. Yeah. 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 <laughs> there, yeah. There's something there. Yeah. Um, he's running for governor. That's Remember, awesome. we were kind of saying. Scott Drury. Well, we got to get him back on. It would be unbelievable. Governor Scott Drury's got he a ring to us. it. Yeah. By the way. <laughs> right. I feel like it's because hey, hey, he was hey, on our show. Hey, when we talked about that, the no politics bump. That's right. I no politics bump. I think that was the spring he needed My to God. sort of uh, well, we, throw his hat in the ring. We wish him good luck. We do. And we're, we do. we're rooting for him. Absolutely. We're going to follow. We're going to get him on again. I think that's that should be the goal here. So Let's before he we comes on. Yeah, he's never. By the way, <laughs> never he's, again. He's, he, by the way, he's hiring hackers <laughs> yeah. to erase that episode. Right. Any trace of ever even talking to us losers <laughs> never it's heard gone. of us yeah so before we uh call our guest yeah. uh you know you kind of got me on to dissent magazine yes. a while back yep. and i love it i mean it's it's one of the only magazines i pay for anymore uh pretty very happily pay right. for right um so do you want to just quickly kind of set it up for yeah people who don't know dissent magazine was founded in 1954 by basically the left wing of american intellectuals, um, Irving Howe, um, Meyer um, Shapiro, and a couple other people. Um, and, you know, openly socialist at the time. Yep. Um, and responding to McCarthyism. Yep. Right. So their whole thing was, we're going to dissent, right? Um, and uh, since then, they, you know, they've, they've just got this sort of, you know, galaxy of awesome writers who've, who've, who've written for them. Yeah. Um, and, and now there's still kind of like a home um, for left-wing thought. It comes out quarterly. Everybody should subscribe to it. It's awesome. Yeah. Um, and there's the great, I th the great thing about Dissent also is that their articles are like three pages long. Right. But they're packed with information and really yeah. smart analysis. So, so I can't say enough good things about it. So Michael uh, is the chief editor yep. um, of Dissent. And he's also a professor of history, American history at Georgetown. And he's written a bunch of books on... A lot of really relevant books for our politics right now, a book on the history of American populism, um, uh, a book on um, Paris or, or uh, what the hell, Russia or something? No, no, no. So he's he's written, um, it's re really on sort of uh, social movements in America. So yeah. he's written a book on the 60s. Um, he's written a book on uh, sort of like left-wing radicals and the sort of changes uh that they've sort of produced in american life yeah um so a bunch i can't go through the whole list but he's you know recently published a book about american world war one um and since we're at the 100 year anniversary of american entry you know makes sense to talk to him about it yeah we should he should uh he should really have been waiting to release this at the start of world war three <laughs> maybe <laughs> it could have been like is. a cool little it could be like a cool little thing. Right, right, right. Should we call him? Let's do it. All right. Let's do it. Hello? Michael? Yes. Hey, man, this is Tony and Amit with No Politics at the Dinner Table. 
How you doing? I'm good. Just a quick question before we get into it. Uh, is it Kazin? Kazin or Kazin? Uh, neither. Kazin. Long A. Jesus. Okay. <laughs> we're both we were, we were We were both uh, <laughs> trying to figure that out, but Kazin. All well, right. Thanks for uh, joining us. So I've got a question for you. Are you really eating dinner now? We just, you know, here's what happened. We started this podcast thinking it was a really good idea to eat dinner and talk. And <laughs> then uh, we rapidly were losing followers who didn't like hearing us two disgusting men slobber all over the microphone. <laughs> Yeah, I can understand that. Yeah, yeah it was a horrible yeah. idea. In yeah. retrospect, it was people were not honest with us when they said it was a good idea. So now it's more of like we eat dinner and then we do the podcast and drink. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. So if you hear little ice cubes rattling, it's it's just well, I us. I just finished dinner myself. So oh, great. All right, we all we're all post dinner. Well, let's jump awesome. into it. There's not a whole lot to talk about in the world right now, but we'll come <laughs> right. up with something. <laughs> right, right. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for coming on with us. Um, so. There's a ton to talk about, but the first thing I want to talk about is your new book. Um, and I'm just going to get right into it. I think there's a lot of questions that you engage with in this book that are relevant now. Um, but one thing was basically sentiment about war, right? The sort of historical sentiment about war in America. Uh, you cite in the book a Gallup poll, like somewhere in the latter parts of the book, um, basically 20 years after American entry into the war, 1937, that says 70% of Americans, you know, in retrospect, were against American entry into the war, right? Yeah. Which is, which I was really surprised by. Um, and you incidentally agree with them, um, and I was wondering if you could explain why. Why Americans turned against the war. Why Americans turned against war, and also your sort of um, uh, orientation that, that, they, th that those people were probably right, and certainly sure, the people sure. um, that you, you track in your book were also sure. right. Um, well, one of them is, <laughs> is a good historian's uh, answer. The other one is my own opinion, which, you know, as a historian, I, I'm allowed to have an opinion. Sure. But, um, World War I, um, yeah, the aftermath is quite disillusioning. Uh, uh, Woodrow Wilson went to the war promising uh, to that America would uh, help make the world safe for democracy, that... Uh, uh, after the war was over, he promised self-determination, at least to the nations, uh, the, the peoples who were having part of uh, these empires that lost the war, the German and the uh, Ottoman and the Austro-Hungarian. Um, but what happened was uh, the Senate turned against uh, the peace treaty because they didn't want American troops to be committed to um, resolving conflicts around the world, which... Uh, part of the peace treaty uh, would have uh, probably compelled them to do. Um, Europe fell into uh, depression and more civil wars, and eventually uh, in the 30s, of course, fascism uh, and Stalinism uh, in Russia, and then the uh, Japanese invaded China. Um, and by the, by the late 1930s, uh, the world was obviously a mess. Uh, it was less democratic, arguably, than it had been before World War I, uh, less peaceful, uh, and clearly another war could be on the horizon. So most Americans said that was <laughs> that was a bad idea. Um, my own opinion, um, you know, it's tough because uh, if you say the U.S. shouldn't have fought in the war, you're forced to uh, propose what historians call counterfactual arguments, you know, uh, what would have happened if the U.S. didn't enter the war, and we'll never know for sure. I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times last week which said, it would, you know, uh, if the U.S. hadn't entered the war, the Germans 
probably wouldn't have lost, and you probably wouldn't have had Hitler, and maybe not a Second World War. But of course, you know, that's based on some educated guesses. Uh, but I do think that this is in general, I think the U.S. should should fight only wars that are in its self-interest, uh, and wars where it's fighting for its self-defense. doesn't mean we shouldn't perhaps, you know, help peoples uh, liberate themselves uh, with arms, so that's a different question. But actually committing uh, thousands, sometimes millions of American men and now women uh, to fight a war, uh, which is a war of choice, I think that's usually a mistake. And I think uh, World War One was not a war where uh, in which the United States was threatened. Uh, Germany was not had no air force yet to, uh, or navy to get to the United States. Uh, there was no chance that the United States was going to be the homeland was going to be threatened um, if the U.S. did not enter the war. Um, so it was a war uh, for ideals, and it was a war um, to uh, sort of expand American power. And I think that was not worth fighting. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Um, the yeah the the I, I read your your piece in the Times on uh, I think it was April sixth, right? Um, that that you 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 posited that that counterfactual about possible outcomes, um, uh, but for the entry of the Americans, and you know, I, I suppose you know historians would quibble about that, right? right? That that well, if they if if the Americans had not gone in, the argument would be that. Brest-Litovsk was even a more punitive treaty than Versailles, and God knows what the Germans would have done afterwards. And so, so there's right there's all sorts of other possible outcomes. Um, yeah, there's a lot, lot, lot of pushback, you know. And uh, but I think you know the, the the German government was semi-democratic. You know, they had a Reichstag, they had a parliament that is, which in which uh, uh, the, the the military could not get could not get money unless unless the Reichstag gave them the money f- to fight the war. Um, and the largest party in the Reichstag was a socialist party, uh, which had supported the war. But, you know, uh, who knows if the Germans win the war, uh, it might have expanded its power and said, no, you know, let's let's now that we're this powerful nation in Europe. Let's let's make sure that we make peace with the other nations. Uh, right. Again, who knows? For sure. Right, right, right. So a major question that I think your book raises um, is the sort of durability of broad-based coalitions. Um, so you yeah. track basically four different prongs of an anti-war movement that are basically against war, but for different reasons. Um, and it sort of makes for a very sort of strange um, political bedfellows. Um, and I was wondering, you know, what you would say about precisely that durability. Is that, is that something that can be sustained um and does it fall apart as i think it seems like you suggest it falls apart because of aggressive state action right you get like in palmer raids and you can go down the line uh cointel pro in the in the 60s and all that um that basically the state uh is trying to repress people who are anti-war um but is it is it also possible that there are political fissures in between these different prongs that would not make it really durable and sustainable? Oh, sure. I mean, it doesn't really fall apart until the U.S. declares war. It goes to war, and the Congress passes the, the, the Espionage Act and, and Sedition Act of 1917, which mm-hmm. makes it very dangerous to oppose the war, even to give speeches against the war or write articles against the war. Um, and... Uh, the coalition really quickly, I don't want to bore your listeners <laughs> with historical detail, but um, generally you have 
Southern Democrats who don't like a stronger government, they think it's going to result from the war, and also are suspicious of, of Wall Street and, and northern industrialists. Um, and you got progressive Republicans, most of the Midwest, Robert LaFollette, the most famous of them, um, who have the same critique of Wall Street in many ways, but they, they are not opposed to a strong, a strong central government per se. Um, um, and then you got socialists uh, who were uh, in their heyday then. The Socialist Party was in its heyday. had uh, over 120,000 members, uh, the equivalent of like 50,000 members today. Um, and you had pacifists and feminists uh, who were often the same people, people like Jane Addams, famous social worker. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and, you know, I think um, what happened once the U.S. declares war is that uh, the Southern Democrats, uh, most of them, not all of them, uh, support Wilson, who himself is uh, born in the South and, of course, uh, is a Democratic president. Um, uh, they were you know, opposed to him uh, trying to prepare the country for war before then, but once he decides the war, country has to go to war, he sheds his ambivalence about going to war, then you know, they, they follow their partisan loyalties uh, and, uh, and, support, and support him. So that part falls away. Um, and, you know, it was tremendous tension and, and uh, um, you know, difficulty in, in opposing the war. I mean, Robert LaFollette uh, continues to give a couple speeches, actually, against the war um, after the U.S. goes to war. And uh, he's almost expelled from the Senate, uh, which is pretty rare. <laughs> the only other only senator, he was not, he's not expelled from the Senate, uh, but he almost was. And the only senators who ever been expelled from the U.S. Senate uh, were, were guys who joined the Confederacy <laughs> during the Civil War. <laughs> So let's fast forward from World War One to uh, World War Three. Um, <laughs> That's very cheery. I'm a, That's very cheery. I know. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm assuming uh, you are not in favor of these uh, beautiful Tomahawk missiles that just got dropped up on a on the Syrian air base uh, this past week. Well, I'd be I'd be in favor of Assad no longer having power. He's a monster. Right. Uh, but uh, it's unclear whether this will do anything to bring about that end. And, and uh, you know, Trump seems, as you know, like he, he decides, I'm president. Uh, boy, I can, I can do anything I want. You know, I can push all these buttons. And if I get pissed off at a picture I see on TV, I can do something about it. And that's not a strategy. Um, and the question always is, of course, you know, okay, Assad falls, fine. Then who takes over? So, um, no, I think it was <laughs> but because of that context. I think right. it's not a good idea. So, were you shocked, Amit? Uh, I asked Amit the same question. I won't tell you what he said. Were you shocked that so many Democratic senators came out praising um, this kind of show? No, I don't think so. I mean, um, you know, there's there are senators of a government which has this massive military, and uh, and this is frustration. I think with Obama that he didn't use it more than he did. Uh, Especially in in, in in Syria, and uh, you know, I mean, I, I I don't sympathize with them, but I empathize with that frustration. I mean, you know, five hundred thousand people, something like that, have died, and you know, millions of immigrants and migrants, rather, in, in Europe, and um, you know, it's an awful humanitarian catastrophe. So, and also, I think they probably also think, uh, well, if they're against it, then they have to say why, you know, then they have, maybe have to answer to people saying, you know, to think it was fine to guess those people. So. Um, no, I wasn't. I wasn't shocked. Um, you know, I think. I think if if uh, if Trump decides to send troops over there, at least in large numbers, uh, or even in much larger numbers than we already have over there, then 
that'd be a different question. Yeah, this this brings me to um, sort of bridging the, the past and present. Um, so in your book, you make this argument that unlike other activists, say like gay rights activists or labor rights activists and so on, peace activists have uh, no natural constituency. Um, that yep. basically that they have to convince people that whatever war that happens to be in the offing is objectionable for you know X Y reason. Um, and so what might that mean in our era of seemingly endless war, right? So that, that, that there's not this sort of, this, this war, it's just a war that seems uh, to be, you know, there's this sort of this ambient violence that's been going on since 2001. Um, how, what prospects, if any, are there for uh, a peace movement uh, now or an anti-war movement? And would it have to take us on a sort of different orientation than what you've studied? Yeah, no, it's a good question. You know, um, it, it is it is very tough. You know, America has been at war for most of our history, actually, if you include the wars against right. Native Americans. I think you have to. And the yeah, anti-war movements have been pretty evanescent, and, and there's only two I think have been all strong: the, the one I wrote about and the one against the Vietnam War. Um, and uh, you know, I think uh, anti-war movements, you know, have to put forth a vision of a different kind of world. And that world, you know, harmonious, democratic, uh, people, you know, figuring out ways to solve the conflicts without going to war. I mean, that's what the UN was supposed to be for. That's what the League of Nations was supposed to be for, too, uh, before World War II. And uh, neither of those have worked out very well. And, of course, what we see instead is a resurgence of nationalism, you know, um, in in most of the world, actually. Um, hard to think of uh, any nation where that's not true right now. So... So, you know, I hate to, I hate to say it, but uh, I'm not optimistic in the short term anyway. Um, I think that that um, uh, people who, who believe that, that war is, is a bad idea and that believe that peaceful resolution of, of conflicts is, is necessary have to start talking about that in serious ways. Um, but that usually happens during, you know, a war which Americans oppose. I mean, that began to happen some during Vietnam. Um, and... Uh, Happened a little bit after the Cold War ended, actually, because there seemed to be no reason for the United States to have all these troops around the world, but we <laughs> we kept them anyway. Um, and it happened after World War One too. I, I mean, there was people forget in 1929, I think it was, um, um, the um, Secretary of War, uh, Frank Kellogg, in the United States, and the his counterpart in France, Gennady Brion, signed a treaty to outlaw war, and right, 60 right. nations signed on to it. I mean, that's amazing. Can you imagine? But it had no enforcement. With yeah. uh, part of it, so didn't mean anything. But you know, I think we have to start thinking utopian ways. I guess uh, is the only thing I can say. Um, and part of the problem too now is that you know most Americans don't support the war in Afghanistan anymore. They're very dubious, I think, about the war uh, in Iraq. Though they like to defeat ISIS, of course. But <coughs> excuse me. But the problem is, you know, nine eleven still throws a very long shadow, and and if. If uh, American wars can be defined as wars against uh, terrorism, uh, then it's going to be hard to defeat them. Yeah. Oh, excuse me, hard to build a movement against them. Right, right. Um, so I wanted to just quickly also, uh, while we have you on here, um, I wanted to, to, to talk about dissent. Um, right. And, right. you know, Ahmed kind of teed up the history of dissent, but, um, you know, it seems like, you guys are, are are at least paying attention to the voice of the small minority, well, g- growing uh, movement in the Democratic Party, uh, which kind of 
sympathizes with the democratic socialist view. Um, what What is it like, um, you know, what's the plan going forward? What, what is the motive behind the stories you're writing and, and where you're really concentrating? Well, we began in late 54 uh, as a democratic socialist magazine, and that's still our, our commitment. You know, we, you know, we believe in a decent egalitarian society, um, but one that, you know, would look more like uh, societies of Scandinavia, would not like uh, look like <laughs> the Soviet Union used to look, certainly. Um, and, um, you know, we've picked up a thousand new subscriptions since Trump was elected. <laughs> That's the only good thing I can think of. Uh, because people are looking for, you know, a different, a different vision. I wow. think, you know, clearly, uh, you know, the left uh, sort of energized during the Obama administration, I think, to, to push him further to the left. Uh, Black Lives Matter and the Fight for 15. Um, uh, the, um, you know, the movement for marriage equality, all, you know, we're doing quite well. And then, of course, the, the Sanders campaign really really sort of brought some of those strands together and and that momentum i think continues in a lot of ways uh so you know we as a magazine you know, we're a small magazine uh but we uh with an active website dissentmagazine.org uh, uh you know i think my um vision for it is sort of to bring together sort of left democrats and radicals uh to figure out you know ways in which uh social movements on the left and people within the Democratic Party can, you know, sort of work together, uh, policies that, that, uh, in some ways they can agree on, uh, uh, and, and, you know, and also to identify sort of our friends around the world. Michael Walzer, who was a co-editor uh, for a long time, and I was co-editor with until he retired a few years ago, a very, very great political theorist. Some people might know uh, his name. You know, he, he wrote a piece in our, uh, in our last issue, uh, talking about our foreign policy should, on the left should be identify our friends in, in different countries, you know, people who, who share our values, uh, uh, and so listen to them, listen to what they, uh, what kind of power they think the United States should have. Uh, I think that's a, a better guide to what people can do, uh, than just sort of saying, okay, don't go in there, don't go in there, or, you know, have this policy. I mean, we should, I, I believe, you know, again, talking about nationalism before, I'm, I'm a committed internationalist. You know, I think, I think there are a lot of people around the world who, who are, have the same values and generally the same politics as I do. Um, and I want to, I want to further their, uh, their fortunes and I want them to help further my fortunes as well and the fortunes of the left in this country. So, you know, that is our mission uh, as I see it. Great. Um, that's important. Um, I, I have a question for you, and I don't know, maybe you can answer it, maybe not. So, you know, speaking as uh, you are, you're a historian of American social movements, American politics, and you're an editor of Dissent. Could you explain to me why magazines like, you know, like the Weekly Standard and the National Review can exert such power um, over policy, right? So, like, if they bang the war drums suddenly we're in Iraq. Um, and, you know, the left <laughs> magazines, they, don't, they often don't get a hearing and just get it called utopian. But I would argue it's equally utopian to say, we're going to walk into Iraq and create a, uh, you know, a, a, a sort of democratic Shangri-La right away. Uh, and they're going to throw flowers sure, sure. at our tanks. Right. So why is it that this one type of militarized utopianism is embraced while this uh, sort of leftist um, international pacifism, or at least sort of peace-tending uh, movement, is not. 
Well, because there's a long history of, <laughs> since Wilson, actually, in World War I, of uh, believing American force uh, can only be used for good, is only used for good, and and uh, uh, and when the Weekly Standard National Review said uh, George W. Bush was quite right to go into Iraq, uh, that was in keeping with uh, the gospel as <laughs> as as preached by Woodrow Wilson, who was not a conservative uh, politically, domestically, except on race, where he was a terrible racist, but uh, but economics and you know other kinds of policies, he was um, he was quite progressive in many ways. Um, you know, so some ways they they had success because they were going with the flow. I think they were not saying things which were um, all that controversial. Certainly not within the Republican Party, and they, you know, people wrote for them. Uh, so some of the some of the people who wrote for them were were either had been policymakers or would be again people like Elliot Abrams, who I went to right. college with, who was almost going to be the uh, uh, second in command to Tillerson, I think. Uh, um, Deputy Secretary of State, and you know he's been in the government for a long time. He goes in and out of the government, and uh, and, and and folks like that write for the Weekly Standard, write for the National Review. We don't, we don't understand. We don't have um, you know once once in a while we have a congressperson or a or a state senator write for us, but in general, uh, or some state policymaker. But in general, you know we have people who are outside the realms of power. Okay. Okay. Um. Right, um, yeah. and I'm and I'm assuming they're paying you millions of dollars of dissent. Uh, actually, I get paid nothing. <laughs> uh, I this is purely volunteer. I used to, I used to joke. It's the perfect socialist job. Lots of work, no money. <laughs> uh, but luckily, my staff gets paid. We have uh, my staff. The, the staff gets paid. We have three great, uh, three and a half, I should say, uh, young uh, staff members, all under thirty-five, and uh, the, the half is not. He's not. He's not a very small person. He he, he works half. He works part time. Wow. The other three work full time. And without them, we'd have no magazine. Okay. One last question. Um, why do you think the democratic socialist uh, message did not re- just uh, take on like a wildfire with the poor of this country who still uh, didn't all jump on the Bernie Sanders bandwagon and and kind of went with uh, candidates who definitely were not serving their self interest. Well, because I think socialism to people means a bigger government. And a lot of Americans don't trust the government to do very much for them. I mean, look, they get a lot from the government, as we know, you know, Medicare and Social Security. And if you have a house, you know, mortgage deduction, uh, roads, police, you know, the military, everything else. But, you know, a lot of people think that the uh, the government is like the DMV, you know, that, it, that it's a hassle, it's too bureaucratic, it wastes money. Um, you know, for all kinds of reasons, they've, they've bought the conservative... Uh, uh, take on on government. Uh, a lot of people have anyway, um, and you know part of that is because uh, I would argue because uh, uh, the government doesn't have enough universal programs to cover everybody. I mean, when it does have universal programs like Social Security, and Medicare, they're very popular. Uh, but too many of the programs seem to be help this person for that, help this person for that. You know, it's not it's not a sense of a really a, a welfare state in the best sense. Uh, uh, the way you have in Europe, in, in some parts of Europe, anywhere. But were you guys excited to see uh, kind of Bernie Sanders really challenge the uh, old school Democratic Party and and kind sure. of s- set this sure, movement? Sure. And and what do you yeah, think the future yeah. of that is? Do you think it's going to grow, or do you think it's going to be stomped away by the Democratic uh, owners? <laughs> well, I have to think. I mean, I think I th- I don't think there's as much of a you know division between. You know the Democratic quote establishment end quote and and Bernie people. I mean, there's um, 
in part because you know Democrats, it's a pretty open party actually, and and they understand they they need to win elections. So uh, more and more, I think you'll see the the, the Democrats who are running in 2018, and, and then those running in 2020 are sounding a lot a lot, a lot more like Bernie uh, than they than they, than they were like Hillary. Uh, uh, there's there, there's nothing which concentrates the mind of a politician like like losing a race you think you should win, uh, and that's what happened with uh, the Democrats in 2016. Well, Michael, we uh, really appreciate you coming on. Uh, we are big fans. We're going to keep pushing people to subscribe. And uh, great, great. We, uh, we love what you're doing, so, so keep it going. Thanks a lot, and, and enjoy uh, tomorrow's dinner. Thank you. You too. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, that was awesome. Yeah, that was, that was awesome. I mean, it's a great, um, it's a great product. It, uh, he's, not, is, he's not getting paid. Descent, yeah, I know. That's, it's, uh, it's quite selfless of him. Um, the, you know, the magazine is awesome. Um, I was a little surprised about how optimistic he is about yeah. um, democratic coalescence, right? right. That, 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 and, and he may be right. I mean, the press often sort of plays up you know, that everybody hates each other and, you know, there's all the drama in the party, yeah. and, you know, that the Bernie wing and the Hillary wing are at each other's throats and so on. Um, so maybe, 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 maybe it'll be easier, but, um, yeah, I don't know. Who knows? I'm, I'm, saying, I'm hoping he's right. Are you I'm saying really that you right. and me, me and you have turned into the, uh, old guys in the balcony of the Muppets. We just think everything's terrible. <laughs> basically, basically. I mean, because I, all I see is like Schumer, Booker, uh, Pelosi, I, I don't. I mean, you see Bernie out there, but that's just because yeah. he's out there. But I don't. You know, weirdly, the only person who's been consistently vocal and on the right side of things is Kirsten Gillibrand. Yeah, is and I was surprised by that because she started from New York. She, from New York, yeah. She basically she's great. Took, she basically took over Hillary's position when she be, when Hillary became Secretary of State. Yeah, and um, and she ran on very like. Pro guns, right. Um, right. you know, kind of like a centrist Democrat. Yeah, and now she's kind of adopted. Um, she's a representative, right? No, or she's a senator. She's, she's a senator. Yeah, she, Hillary used to be the senator. She she took her seat once Hillary went to oh, right. became Secretary of State. Um, and it's it's her and Schumer, right? They're 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 new right. senators, right? And so she, for every single vote um, on a Trump nominee, she's voted down. Right. Um, no, no, she's had and, a perfect record <laughs> uh, if you're talking about the resistance. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because exactly. I, th- what's sad is that she's not getting... Which is a hilarious term at this point. <laughs> yeah, there's no resistance. The resistance is like yeah. here in my house. It's like me and G. Right. Uh, and the readers she's the an sense. amazing... She's really not getting any national play because even Troy in Utah, who's like, he's into politics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He had, he's like, never heard of her. Hmm. So I sent him some stuff, but I'm just like this. This is the the woman who I think might be next up. For yeah, us well, because I think she's, she's not, planning on it. I think she's I'm good. She's logging. I, I agree votes. with her message. She's logging the votes. <laughs> like, look, I did this. You know, Trump was elected, and this is what I've done so far. As of right now, um, yeah, I'm. I'm and very guess much what? Aligned. It's working. Yeah, it's working. <laughs> right, right. But the the whole Democratic Party. I actually the only thing I disagree with is I actually think the Democratic Party is a fucking mess. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and I again, just don't like any of them. And again, but the, I, again, I get the optimism because you're gonna have something to hold on to. Because look at the Republicans. I mean, they're 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 basically sociopaths at this point. 
Um, they, they They're used, disgusting. They used to be Except like for Rand Paul has come out right like and and he's like the only one that's been like these strikes are stupid. Like I know, these, but if you if Rand if if Rand Paul was president, you know, you'd have like we couldn't drink this beer because there'd be no regulations. No, <laughs> you know, but like, we'd be smoking weed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Probably tainted though. <laughs> um, yeah, it's really it's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Um, I. I'm ambivalent, right? I'm, I'm at at points. You see what's going on in the Trump administration right now, and uh, they're flailing, right? This whole like notion of uh, Steve Bannon as this great Machiavelli who's actually you know pulling all these strings. Trump's turning on him. He's he's about you know he's collapsing, right? He's imploding. Beautiful. Um, so, and I read a report today that undisclosed source, but somebody in the House, and I, it's probably like the whip. Um, who said that if things go like this, continue like this, if we don't turn it around in a few weeks, um, once the campaigns for 2018 come, we're going to lose the house, right? Because, and I thought that was a little extreme because little extreme. they've gerrymandered the district, so yeah. I think they're pretty, pretty good, yeah. uh, at least till 2020 uh, when there's a new census. But but um, but they're they are noticing right that that things aren't going well, right? So that might. That might present itself as an opportunity for for Democrats, um, and I think if we could just get The Rock to run for president, <laughs> he'll win. Rock versus Donald Trump. Who mm. you going with? Oh, I think The Rock. The Rock. Yeah. <laughs> Besides, yeah. we could call him The Rock. The, the Rock. President. Right. Right. Mr. Pre- president. The Rock. President. The Rock. Yeah. Is that how you would introduce him? Like at, at the <laughs> like president State Rock. of the Union. President. Rock. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States, right. The Rock. <laughs> 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 it wouldn't be a step too far compared to what we have now. <laughs> you know what? I would love them. No. Over half of these idiot politicians. I mean, you already have one person who's in the WWE Hall of Fame. Why not another one, right? Yeah, that's true. Well, I think they took him out. You know what we should do? We should make a uh, celebrities we want to run for president. That's not a bad idea. Yeah. Yeah. The Rock's at the top Rock of the list. Rock is, num- yeah. I think that, like, he's pretty high. He could just go to North Korea by himself. Right. And just like flex. And win. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, this has been awesome. All right, for for everybody out there, we highly recommend Descent Magazine. Descent. If you're listening, Please. if you're still listening to us after a year, it means you probably agree with us. Right. So, right, check uh, out their, their uh, what Michael was saying is their website is great, and they publish a lot of free content there. Yeah, um, but definitely subscribe. Yeah, you get six because, beautiful issues a year. It's awesome for a fair yeah. price. Yeah. Uh, no politics at the dinner table is produced by Jeep Baderoy. We are still on social media. We are. Facebook has been pumping up. We've been getting a lot yeah. of stuff going on there. Yeah. Yeah. You've taken over the Twitter. I have. That's um, nice. You know, not very robustly, but <laughs> but, but but I'm on there. Yeah, motivate uh, us to do more, guys. Yeah, yeah. But Facebook, I'm very active. Yeah, we're on there yeah. and Instagram. Yeah. And Instagram. We'll, yeah. we'll, uh, we'll, yeah. s- we'll talk to you and see you next week. See you next week. Bye.